Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our study through Dr. Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Where or what is the place on planet Earth that you would least like to go? If you're, if you're at the DMV, if you're a Bama fan, you would probably say Opelika. If you're an Auburn fan, you'd probably t- say Tuscaloosa. If you're a tech fan like me, you probably break out into hives the closer you get to Athens, right? For Georgia fans, you're not afraid of anything, are you? <laughs> but if you're an Israelite living in Roman-occupied Palestine... The place where you would least like to go outside of Rome itself is Caesarea. And this is the place to which God sends the apostle Peter in this passage. Caesarea is the capital in this time of the Roman occupation of Israel. And as such, it is absolutely detested by the Jews. They hate Caesarea. They refer to Caesarea as the daughter of Edom, which is uh, not a kind reference to Rome. Of all the cities in Palestine, this is probably the place that Peter wanted to go to the least. And yet, this is the place where God sends him to preach. The story that's going to unfold for us on the pages of Scripture this morning, this conversion of this centurion named Cornelius is a story that really is the gateway for the rest of the book of Acts. Up to this point, Christianity has been centered in Jerusalem, but after what happens in this passage, the groundwork is laid for the gospel going now to the nations, to the ends of the earth, as Jesus had instructed But this conversion of Cornelius required another conversion of sorts, a conversion of the apostle himself. Because there was something in Peter, something in his heart, that was a barrier to the gospel. It was a barrier to the gospel advancing. And as with any other barrier to the gospel, God was going to remove it. This is by far, I'll say in advance, the largest passage of Scripture that we've handled yet in our study of the book of Acts. So I hope you brought your lunch or a snack of some sort and you're settled in for a ride. Um, It is a long passage, but just bear with me. We're going to read through the entire chapter 10 as well as the first 18 verses of chapter 11. So bear with me. Actually, bear with the Lord. He's the one who wrote this. It really does go together as a unit. So it's hard to separate this into different uh, sermons, and so we're going to read the whole thing this morning. God's Word says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? 
And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice and said to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry of Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one that you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I, am, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore... We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So, the, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent into Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him 
after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers among the the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up into heaven again. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And I began to speak, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray, Father, that as we seek to unpack this now, God, that you would help us to learn what we need to learn. Not just that we would know better about this story and understand it more, but Lord, the the lessons that you have for us on these pages of Scripture might be lessons that are driven deep into our soul and that by your Spirit they change us They sanctify us. They make us look a bit more like Jesus. And Father, we pray for the lost among us this morning in this very room. God, that the power and the truth and the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ might intersect their lives. And God, that you might grant them, as you did the Gentiles in Caesarea, repentance that leads to life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a lot here, but it's all one big story. And the one main point of this story is this. 
that our God, without a hint of partiality or prejudice, is preparing those who are far from him, those that don't deserve him, those who have rebelled against him, he is preparing them to hear and respond to the gospel. And at the same time, he's preparing us, his children, to be sent and proclaim the gospel in part by removing the barriers to the gospel that reside in our hearts. That's what this story is about. And in order for us to come to grips with this story and to understand that main point, we're going to unpack three lessons that I see in this passage. The first lesson that I think is very plain as we look at this story is that God is sovereign in evangelism. God is sovereign in the Great Commission. That God is preparing unbelievers to hear and respond, and God is preparing believers to be sent and proclaimed. He prepares the sent, those who are sent with the gospel, that's us. And he prepares those to whom they are sent, that is the mission field. And we see both in this passage. God prepares Cornelius to hear the gospel, and God prepares Peter to proclaim the gospel. Now, what do we know about Cornelius? Well, from verse 1, we know that he is a Gentile centurion. Not only is he a Gentile, that is, he is a non-Jew, so he's not like Peter. He's not like those that Peter is used to hanging out with. He's different. He's a non-Jew. But more than that, he is a Roman centurion. He is an officer of some standing in the Roman army. As a centurion, he would have been in command of at least 100 other soldiers. Because of his importance and notoriety in Caesarea, he probably was in command of much more than that. Also, as a centurion, he would have received at least four times the amount in pay that an enlisted soldier would. So he was a man of some wealth, relatively, and he was a man of significant influence. Secondly, we learn from verse 2 that he was very religious. Luke writes of him that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually. So this Cornelius was a very religious man. It's a very religious person. But it's clear from this passage that his religion could not save him, no matter how good he was, no matter how much he feared God. No matter how devout he was, no matter how generous he was in his almsgiving, no matter how much he prayed, even if it was continuously, he still had a sin problem. Cornelius's sin did for Cornelius what our sin does for us. It condemned him to a just and eternal judgment. And so thirdly, consequently, he was unsaved. In chapter 11, verse 14, as we read, when Peter is relaying back to the guys in Jerusalem what happened, he tells them what the angel told to Cornelius. And he says, the angel said to Cornelius this, he, meaning Peter, when you find him, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. The angel tells Cornelius you need to be saved. And you need to be saved because you're unsaved. Well, saved from what? 
saved from the penalty of his sin. He, Cornelius, just as we do, deserves a just and eternal judgment because of his sin and rebellion against God. That's what he deserves. And he needs to be saved from that. And the angel tells Cornelius, in order for you to be saved from that, you need a message. A message that this guy in Joppa is going to give to you. And of course, that message is the gospel. The good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to to live among us and to live perfectly, to live and, and achieve the righteousness that we never could, to die in our place on the cross, paying for the sins of all those who would trust in him, and rising three days later, proving that he has defeated sin and death for all those who place their faith in him. And this is the gospel that Peter will subsequently preach to Cornelius and all his household later in this passage. This is a bit later, but for now, what I want us to see here is the necessity of the gospel. The necessity of the gospel. Cornelius needed to be saved. And the only way for Cornelius to be saved is for a message to be brought to him by one of God's people. He, he, he needed the gospel. He couldn't be saved without the gospel. In God's divine plan, he has foreseen that in order for anyone to be forgiven, in order for sinful man to be rescued from that just and eternal judgment that we deserve because of our sin, we need the message of the gospel proclaimed to us so that we can hear it and respond to it in repentance and faith. That's God's plan. There's no other way. We must respond, hear and respond to the gospel. And that's what God does with Cornelius here. He prepares him to hear it. He prepares him to respond to it. He shows him his need. He shows him that he needs to be saved because of his sin. And he shows him that in order to be saved, you need a message that comes to you, a message that's going to be delivered by this guy Peter who lives 30 miles away in Joppa. That was God preparing Cornelius to hear the gospel. Now, before we move on to Peter being prepared to preach the gospel, I want us to consider for a moment who are the Corneliuses in our life whom God is preparing to hear the gospel from us. Think about that. God may be at this very moment preparing your neighbor's preparing your co-workers through circumstances, through life events, through others to hear the gospel, to see their need, that they need to be saved, that they need a message of salvation. God is preparing them to hear the gospel from you. When we talk about a gospel opportunity, that's part of what we mean, that, that, that God is working on their heart, helping them to see their need to be rescued, to, to see their need to be saved. And having been prepared by God and ready to hear it, they hear it from you. We can rest assured that when we're given the opportunity to share the gospel, and we do, and somebody comes to faith in Christ, we can rest assured that long before we ever came on the scene, God is working on their heart, preparing them like he did Cornelius to see their need for rescue, to see their need 
to be saved. Who are the Corneliuses in your life that God is preparing right now to hear the gospel from you? Now, in saying that, probably goes without saying that there are probably Corneliuses among us this morning in this very room. Are you a Cornelius? That God has been working on your heart? That he's been leading you through circumstances and life events and through what others have been telling you so that you might see your desperate and hopeless condition apart from Christ? And friend, he's got you here this morning within earshot of this message that you must have if you are to be rescued from what you and I deserve because of our sin. I pray that if that's the case for you, that this morning as you hear the gospel, that God would grant you repentance and faith to respond to the gospel and be rescued. God prepares Cornelius to hear it, and then he prepares Peter to proclaim it. So Cornelius obeys the angel. He sends the three men to Joppa to look for Peter and bring him back to Caesarea so that he might deliver that message. Meanwhile, back in Joppa, the apostle needs a conversion. The apostle Peter needs to be converted from thinking that the gospel is only for people like him. Peter's heart had a barrier to the gospel in it. And God was going to do whatever he needed to do to remove that barrier. And the anti-gospel barrier that's in Peter's heart, that, that God is going to remove, that Peter needs to be confronted by, is going to lay the groundwork for the second lesson from this passage. But before we move on to that second lesson and see how Peter learned it, I want us to consider for a moment and ask ourselves, what are the barriers to getting the gospel out for us that reside in our hearts? What anti-gospel barriers reside within us that are a barrier to gospel advancement from us? For Peter, his barrier was racism. His barrier was prejudice thinking that the gospel was only for people who looked like him. And if that's, if that's a barrier for you for getting the gospel out, then God's going to deal with you in like manner to, he de- to how he dealt with Peter in this story. But there are lots of other kinds of barriers that we might wrestle with that are hurdles or barriers to the gospel advancing from us, as God intended. If it's fear then perhaps God is going to show us that we need to fear Him, not man. If our barrier is a lack of concern for the lost, then God's going to do something to break our heart over the condition of the lost people that He puts within our spheres of influence. If our barrier is a lack of knowledge about what to say, perhaps God is going to remind us of the simplicity of the gospel. It's not complicated. If the barrier that you're wrestling with this morning 
that is preventing the gospel going out from you is that you think that there is way too much sin in you for you to be the person to tell another person about Jesus, then God's going to do something to remind you of his amazing grace. He's going to remind you of the words of Paul who said that we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. We, we, have, we have the gospel, this treasure, in jars of clay. Sinners like us. Why? He says, so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He's going to remind you that it's just like God to you sinners like us to hold out the gospel to other sinners so that he gets all the glory. If your barrier to the gospel getting out from you is a, is a preoccupation with your own agenda to where you just don't have enough time to hold out the gospel to your lost friends, neighbors, and coworkers, then God's going to remind you that this, Christian, is your mission in life. This is your reason for living. And that this agenda of the Lord's is more apparent important than that agenda the point is that no matter what the barrier is in your heart that's keeping you from holding out the gospel to you to the lost in your spheres of influence god's going to do whatever he has to do to get rid of that barrier he's going to take his word whether it's the word that's preached on sunday morning or whether it's the the word that you unpack with fellow brothers and sisters or whether it's the word that you are reading on your own he's going to use that word to confront that barrier and remove it. And he's going to put you in situations where you must learn to hurdle that barrier or else. That's what he did with Peter. Peter needed to learn the lesson that what God has made clean, do not call common. And we're, look, we're going to look at a moment at his classroom experience and the, and the lesson that God was teaching to Peter. But the point is, no matter what the barrier is in your own heart that is keeping you from holding out the gospel to the loss that God has placed around you, God will teach you from his word and God will lead you into circumstances where you will learn to overcome that barrier. He will do whatever is necessary to remove barriers to the gospel. And why? Here's the point of this section. Because God is sovereign in salvation. He is sovereignly preparing those who need to hear it, and he is sovereignly preparing those who need to deliver it. So which of those is true for you this morning? Is God preparing you to hear and respond to the gospel? Or is God preparing you to be sent and proclaim the gospel? Regardless of which one describes you this morning, my suggestion is that when God is preparing you, it is best to submit to that time of preparation. Let him do what he's going to do. And then submit to that and trust him in whatever he requires of you. But if the barrier in your heart that's keeping you from going with the gospel is prejudice like it was for Peter, then God's going to teach you the lesson that whatever he makes clean, don't call common. That's the second lesson from our passage. God shows no partiality. That's the lesson that Peter needed to learn. He needed to learn that what God makes clean, don't call unclean or common. 
So I want us to look at God's classroom for Peter. And it's a seven-part lesson plan that God uses to teach Peter this lesson. And as we do this, not only is this going to show us that with God there's no partiality and that this gospel of Jesus is a gospel for all, but secondarily, we're going to see here a pattern for how God is going to remove the barriers in our heart and life, no matter what those barriers are. So the first part of this classroom experience for Peter is when he stayed with Simon the Tanner back in Joppa. You recall at the end of chapter 9, after Peter heals lame uh, Aeneas, and after he raises dead Tabitha from the grave in Joppa, there at the end of chapter 9, the very last verse, it says, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Now what does a tanner do? He works with dead animals all day long. So according to Mosaic law, he is ceremonially unclean. And God has Peter staying with this tanner. God's teaching him a lesson. God's leading him through these baby steps to overcome the prejudice in his mind. What God has called clean, don't call unclean. Then what does he do? He gives Peter a vision. He sees this sheet descending from heaven. And there's all kinds of animals on this sheet. Clean ones and ones that according to Mosaic law are unclean. And what does the Lord say? He says, rise, kill, and eat. And can I just tell you what a joy it is in my heart that God told him to do that. God bless the Lord for bacon, right? But Peter refuses. Peter thinks this is a test. Oh, Lord, I've never done that. I've never done that at all. And what does God say? What God has made clean, don't call common or unclean. And apparently, Peter has a thing about not learning lessons the first time and the second time because just as when he denied Jesus, this happens three times for him. God's teaching him. God's got him in his classroom. And he's telling him what he's made clean, don't call unclean. But God's classroom for Peter is just getting started because no sooner has that vision concluded when he hears at the door. The three men that Cornelius had sent from Caesarea are at the door looking for him. And the Spirit tells him, I've sent them. Go with them without hesitation. Now, Peter can't go that same day. Number one, because that would have been terribly unkind to these travelers who had traveled 30 miles from Caesarea. But also, it's a 30-mile journey. And he has to wait until the next day to leave. As we learn in verses 23 and 24, it's a full day's journey. They travel an entire day, and then the next day after that, they enter Caesarea. And so what do they do? Since it's nighttime, we're told in verse 23, Peter invites them in to be his guest. Peter has Gentile house guests. And it's hard to really comprehend what a hurdle this must have been for Peter who held on to this strong prejudice in him against Gentiles, for him to invite them into his home and have them stay with him. He's learning. He's learning the lesson. He's learning the lesson that he's got to learn if the gospel is going to go out from him. God's preparing Peter. 
And then a couple days later, he stays with Cornelius. Now, it's, it's interesting that when he gets to Caesarea, what does Cornelius do? He falls down and he worships Peter. And what does Peter say? He says, stand up. I, too, am a man. In other words, Cornelius, you're a man just like me. He's beginning to see Cornelius and those like him through the eyes of God. Before God, Cornelius, there's no difference between us. He's paying attention in God's classroom. He's learning the lesson that he needs to learn in order to hurdle the barrier to gospel advancement. And then he enters Cornelius' home, and, and we're told after that whole story, we're told in verse 48, that upon Cornelius' invitation, he stays with him many days. The fifth thing that God does to solidify this lesson in Peter's heart is when Peter sees the Holy Spirit poured out on these Gentiles in verses 44 through 48. And it happens in the same way that it did at Pentecost with them. The Holy Spirit falls on them tangibly, visibly. They begin speaking in tongues just as they had. Many Bible scholars refer to this as the Gentile Pentecost because it's clear that Dr. Luke is drawing a, a correlation between what happened with the early disciples in Jerusalem at Pentecost with what is happening here with the Gentiles in Caesarea. And as a result, Peter concludes, verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter has learned an important lesson. God shows no partiality, and neither should we. The gospel is for all. Without consideration for race, without consideration for ethnicity, nationality, language, religious background, or any other human distinction that we might come up with. The gospel is for all. And then to conclude his classroom experience, God reinforces Peter's newly learned lesson by giving him an opportunity to defend it, to defend this gospel for all. So he gets back to Jerusalem, and what happens? He's criticized. He's criticized by others who also hold that prejudice. And in the face of this criticism, a criticism which, by the way, prior to that Caesarea experience, Peter shared. But now, through this conversion of Peter, not only does he not share in that criticism, he defends that hanging out with Gentiles is right and good and necessary. Listen to verses 17 and 18 again from chapter 11. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's a great question. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? This was clearly God's way. I wasn't going to stand in it. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. For Peter, lesson learned, lesson defended. It's a gospel for all, and God shows no partiality. But apparently, later in his life, Peter needed a refresher course in this very same thing. 
Years later, when Paul is church planting in Antioch, he has to confront Peter about this very same thing again. Paul writes about it in Galatians 2, and he says this. When Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that is from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. See, though Peter had learned the right thing to do, his flesh was still weak. And this prejudice was something that he had to fight against for many years afterwards. And thank goodness for devoted brothers like Paul who reminded him of a lesson that he had learned way back in Caesarea. When God calls something clean, don't call it unclean. That every person, no matter how different they are from you, they are made in the image of God. They are fellow image bearers of God and therefore are worthy of respect and honor and care as fellow image bearers. And that this gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel for all. People from every tribe, every language, every nation, and every race. And so as we look at that seven-part lesson plan, where God removed that barrier in Peter's heart, we see a couple of things. First, we see a pattern for how God's going to remove barriers to gospel advancement in our own heart, in our own life, no matter what they are. God's going to put us in situations where we're forced to learn and apply what we've got to learn if the gospel is going to advance out from us. If we're going to hold out the gospel to our lost friends, neighbors, and coworkers. And so if we're afraid of being rejected, then perhaps the Lord's going to allow us to be rejected and we'll see it's okay. It's okay. If the barrier is a lack of concern for the lost, then maybe... Maybe for his glory, he will require you to come to grips with the lostness of your own flesh and blood so that your heart might break over the lostness of your lost friends, neighbors, and coworkers. If the lesson that you need to learn is that your agenda needs to yield to his agenda, then maybe he'll allow your agenda to get so packed that it breaks. Because sometimes we need to be broken in order to see that his agenda is more important than ours. And maybe one day, God will need to give you a refresher course in how to overcome the barrier that you need to overcome. And he'll send a brother or sister to confront you about your lack of gospel advancement. Whatever the barrier is, God's going to dismantle it. So friend, why not let him start today? Offer that barrier to him. Ask him to take it away, whatever it is, so that we can be faithful conduits of the gospel to the lost around us. But the second thing that we see here in this seven-part lesson plan is that, is, is that Peter so desperately needed to learn that, that God shows no partiality. And we shouldn't either. This 
prejudice in Peter's heart was anti-gospel. And so God was going to remove it. So easy for us to be unaware of prejudice in our own hearts. Our flesh prefers to be around people who are like us. Who look like us, talk like us, act like us, and believe like us. But friend, that is a mindset that absolutely kills the missionary drive that Jesus puts in us as followers of his. We are a sent people. We are a sent people who have been sent on a mission with a message to proclaim that message to those who are desperately lost and dying and headed for a Christless eternity without it. But friend, we have not been sent only to people who are like us. We've not been sent only to people who look like us or sound like us. We've not only been sent to people who believe like us. If they believe like us, they wouldn't need the gospel that we've been sent to give them. No, we've been sent to people who need this gospel. We've been sent to deliver this gospel to all our neighbors, to the neighbors who look differently from us. They have a different color skin. They have a different ethnicity. They're from a different nationality to our neighbors that sound different, they speak a different language, to our neighbors that believe differently than us, Muslims and Jews and atheists and agnostics and humanists, to the ones that act differently than us, who live differently than us, the the ones who get smashed on the weekends, the one who raised their kids a lot differently than we do, the, the ones that are so sexually confused and have bought into the LGBTQ revolution in our culture. Yes, to them as well. God has sent us to them to hold out the gospel to them because the gospel is for all. All of them are like us, made in the image of God. They are image bearers of us and of God. And and as image bearers of God, they deserve respect and dignity and care as a fellow image bearer listen loving people who are different from you is not compromising the gospel but instead loving people who are different from you it shows peter the gospel is for all friend is there prejudice in your heart is there prejudice within you If so, where does it raise its head? And perhaps more importantly, how does it impact your missional drive to take the gospel to all? Any kind of prejudice or racism is anti-gospel. And to the degree that it resides in our hearts is the degree to which we must repent of it. Because it is anti-gospel. First lesson from this passage, God's sovereign in salvation he's preparing the lost to hear the gospel he's preparing the found to deliver the gospel second lesson is that god shows no partiality we're all image bearers of him and this gospel of his is a gospel for all and then the third lesson is that god uses the proclamation of the gospel as the means for saving sinners here again we're confronted with the necessity of the gospel 
and the necessity of the gospel proclaimed. Cornelius needed salvation. He needed to be saved. And the only way for him to be saved is for God to send someone to him with a message, the message of the gospel, so that he might hear it and respond to it. And so Peter delivers that. And what we have here in verses 34 through 43 is, a, is an, are eight elements in his gospel sermon. And I want us to, we're going to walk through it very briefly, very quickly. But they're important because they should serve to inform how we tell others about Jesus as well. So what are the elements of his sermon? First of all, he tells them that God shows no partiality in verses 34 and 35. That God welcomes all of those who come to him in faith. From every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. Secondly, he tells them that Jesus is the source of peace with God. That you need peace with God. That you don't have peace with God. And the only way to peace with God is through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, in verse 36, he tells them that Jesus is Lord of all. Learning that Jesus is Savior without being confronted with Him as Lord is at best an incomplete gospel and at worst a false gospel. Coming to Jesus as Savior means making Him your Lord. It means counting the cost that no longer will you call the shots, but He will. It means not just trusting Him as the Lord, but trusting Him as your Lord. Fourth, Peter talks about Jesus' life and earthly ministry, his baptism, his deeds, his healings, his power over disease, and his power over the demons in verses 37 and 38. Peter wants to give Cornelius and his household a picture of Jesus' life and ministry so that he can begin to get a comprehension for the heart of Jesus, that Jesus has the heart of a servant, that he came to serve, and that he has the power. But then Peter centered his sermon on the cross as he tells, tells Cornelius and his household about Jesus' crucifixion in verse 39 and Jesus' resurrection in verses 40 and 41. That Jesus died on the cross to defeat sin and death and they proved that he had done so when he rose three days later. In verse 40, 42, he points out that this same Jesus who died and rose again is going to come back and he will judge the living and the dead. Peter wanted his hearers in that setting to wrestle with the prospect of standing before a holy God and having to give an answer for his life. Every action, every word, every thought. Jesus is also judge. And then he concludes the sermon in verse 43 by saying that God forgives those who put their faith in Jesus this is the gospel. And the point that I want to close with here is that God uses this faithful proclamation of the gospel as the means for pouring out his Holy Spirit and bringing salvation to the Gentiles. And so let us too, likewise, be faithful, church, to proclaim this gospel and none other. Others may criticize us for doing so, whether it is from the religious people on the inside the religious people criticized Peter as well, as we noticed in the first 18 verses of chapter 11. But in the face of growing criticism in our world and culture, may we not shrink back from faithfully proclaiming this gospel. May we tell the truth about God, that he shows no partiality. 
that we have no peace with God apart from Jesus. That Jesus is not just Savior, He is Lord. May we tell others about His life and ministry so that they would know that He is a servant and He has the power to heal and save. And may we center our message on the cross that Jesus died to defeat sin and death and He proved that He had done so when He rose three days later. May we remind people and cause them to wrestle with the reality that they will one day have to answer to Jesus for their life because he's also judge and hold out to them the hope that forgiveness is theirs only through faith in this Jesus. May we faithfully proclaim this message. That's our job. Proclamation is our job. It's God's job to pour out his spirit on whom he wills. Let us do our part and trust God to do his. Church, God is sovereign in salvation. He's preparing the lost to hear from you. And I'm trusting that he's preparing you to bring the gospel to them. God shows no partiality in this mission because all are image bearers of his. And the gospel is for all. And God uses the faithful proclamation of that gospel from his children as the one and only means by which he saves sinners. So as we walk away from this passage, two summary exhortations that I want to give to you, one for believers and one for unbelievers. For believers, here's my final exhortation to you. Let us reject and repent of all anti-gospel prejudice that lies deep within our hearts. And be ready, ready and faithful to proclaim this gospel to whomever he sends to us out of consideration of the fact that God is preparing them to hear from us. And for unbelievers, for those here who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, you, you may have been in church all your life. You, you, you may have been very religious as, as Cornelius was but you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone as your only hope for rescue from what you deserve. To you, my final exhortation is to respond to this gospel. Respond to this gospel that tears down all barriers and welcomes all, all who come to Jesus in faith. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful, so grateful that your word contains truths that cut straight to the heart. And I am thankful, Father, for how you have cut me to the heart through this passage. And I trust that you have done so with my brothers and sisters this morning as well. To you, we say thank you for that. To you, Father, in our hearts and lives, gospel, whatever they might be, Father, we lay them down at your feet. We beg of you that you would take them down. Do whatever you have to do to remove them so that we might be found faithful to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Father, we lift up those in our homes, those in our neighborhoods, those in our workplaces, and Father, even perhaps those among us in this room who have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their only hope. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would grant to them repentance of sins and the faith to believe to respond to that gospel and trust in this Jesus as their only hope. 
We ask that you would redeem them, reconcile them to, to yourself, and remake them as a worshiper of you, for we know that you deserve their worship. And we ask this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.